With sports car racing news from around the globe, this is the Sports Car 365 Double Stint Podcast. Here's Brian Marie. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Double Stint, Sports Car 365's weekly sports car racing podcast in Montreal for the weekend. I'm Ryan Marine. We've got Jake Kilshaw on the other end of the line. He was our man on the ground for the Blancpain Endurance Cup finale at Barcelona. So a lot of ground to cover with him on that, plus the Blancpain GT World Challenge Asia finale over the weekend to discuss. Uh, some news to come to later in the program as well. And Jake had an interview with Andrea Caldarelli. And uh, if you aren't aware, you'll quickly understand why. That was a very good interview to grab. It was a busy weekend and a good one for Andrea and company, and a bit historic too. So let's dive into that, Jake. What you saw transpire in front of you in Barcelona with the uh, Endurance Cup race, and what a season it was for Orange One FFF Racing and Andrea Caldarelli, Marco Mopelli as well. They cap off a tremendous uh, season with a race win and clinch a couple different championships over the weekend. Absolutely. I mean, it's been an absolutely incredible season for that team. For anyone who's listening but isn't aware of the background there, um, quickly, it's a, it's a team that's been racing in Asia mainly. They moved to Europe this year, uh, set up a base in Italy behind the Lamborghini factory. It's run by Andrea Caldarelli, who, of course, is a Lamborghini factory driver, um, very last-minute effort to put three cars together for the Blancpain GT Series, and they've just done absolutely incredibly. They've now won the, the overall combined Blancpain GT Championship, the Endurance Cup, and the Sprint Cup, which was a couple of weeks ago. Um, and Calderelli and Marco Mapelli have become the, the first drivers ever to win those three titles in the same year in Blancpain GT competition. Um, a couple of other drivers have done it before them, but in separate years. So for these guys to do it with a brand new team, um, a new car this year, because of course it, the Evo kit Lamborghini came in this year, um, they did an absolutely incredible job and they deserve every, every bit of their success. I think that was a good summary of where this team came from. And I think for people who hadn't been paying attention to their exploits in Asia, and, and I'll admit I was only tangentially aware of what they had accomplished before they showed up in, in Europe this season, maybe this came out of nowhere for a lot of people. But you look at what they had done overseas, and, and uh, the driving talent certainly was there. So based on the expectations you would have had for this group, you mentioned the last-minute nature of this program coming together, Jake, but uh, is it safe to say this was beyond anybody's wildest expectations when the season began, or did they think that they might be able to carry over their Asian success into the highly competitive European scene? Yeah, I think it was uh, almost a bit of a surprise. I mean, I don't think anyone really expected that a brand-new team could do so well in such a competitive series. Um, but no, they've, they've, they've certainly done it and they've, they've done it in style as well. So, um, a very, a very good job by those guys as well. Um, the fact that, um, Grassa racing team sort of stepped back a little bit in Blancpain this year certainly helped them because they've effectively become the de facto main Lamborghini team in Europe. Um, well in Blancpain at least. Um, so that's definitely helped. But, um, there's, you know, there's, there's big stuff on the horizon for this team. It's interesting to see what they'll do next year. They've certainly got plans to do a lot more stuff with Intercontinental GT Challenge. So I think there's a, there's a good, history, uh, good future ahead of FFF Racing Team. All right, so watch this space for more on that. But speaking of the race as a whole, it was one that was punctuated by several 
incidents, at least one of which was fairly significant that led to a, a pretty lengthy delay and, and ultimately a large chunk of the race was lost to safety car periods. Can you give people who didn't get a chance to see the race a sense for what transpired and, and really the lack of flow that probably characterized the race? Yeah, as you say, it was a, it was a bit of a strange race, really. Um, of the three hours of running, about half of that was run behind the safety car, which, of course, is never really the way that you want um, want to see a race like this go, especially a title decider. Um, it started on the first lap. There was a really massive crash for Zaydash Kanani in the Dynamic Motorsport Porsche, um, which, if you remember, uh, won at Monza. Um, he, he, his car rolled on the back straight, um, so that brought out a safety car, and it took a long time to repair the barriers because I think he'd gone all the way through to the concrete wall at the back. So that needed sorting out. That took about 45 minutes. And then I think there were about five other incidents that brought out the safety car for um, periods here and there throughout the course of the race. So it was really hard to get into any sort of rhythm. Um, the teams that did so benefited well. But really, that, that 5-6-3 Lamborghini of Calderelli, Mapelli and Albert Costa was the only car really that had a strong running throughout the entire race. Um, a lot of the other cars, including the Black Falcon car, they were battling with for the title, uh, sort of dropped back towards the end because they had they had a lot of drama in the last couple of laps, which uh, um, caused a lot of other cars to fall victim. Well, let's go dive into that drama because certainly that's also one of the takeaways. It it uh, it was pretty spicy there at the end. Sounds like uh, that was maybe one of the highlights of the race. Yeah, definitely. There was a, a restart of about three minutes to go after uh, one of the cars had ended up in the gravel. Um, Calderelli was, um, was in the lead in the FFF car. Um, Yelma Berman was second in that Black Falcon car. Effectively, those were the two cars fighting for the titles in Endurance Cup and overall. Whichever of them finished ahead would win the championships. Um, and the, the, it had been a safety car period as well, so the cars were bunched up. Um, Berman sort of got into contact with uh, Dries Manfort in the uh, in, in a WRT Audi that was running in third, and the two of them just fell fell off track, um, had contact, and dropped down the order quite quite a bit actually. So that sort of effectively ended Black Falcon's title hopes, gave Calderelli a bit of a clearer run to the line. Uh, but there were a lot of unhappy faces at WRT and uh, and Black Falcon uh, at the end of the race, definitely. Yeah, so that was uh, that was definitely an, an interesting finish to that one. It's also worth mentioning some of the other class winners. Could you kind of run through how some of the other classes played out? Yeah, uh, interesting battles throughout. Um, we shouldn't really forget about the other classes. Uh, Silver Cup went to um, the Acura SP Mercedes and Nico Bastian, Timo Bogoslavski and Felipe Fraga, who have been absolutely fantastic all year. And Nico Bastian has, has won a lot of different silver cup titles in recent years. He's a very good driver for a silver rated uh, racer. And then in the Pro-Am Cup, it was Santelot racing with effectively a brand new lineup this weekend um, with a couple of guys from French GT4, Edouard Carope and Pierre-Alexandre Jean, along with Pierre-Yves Pack. Uh, that car usually has Marcus Winklehock in it, but he was racing in ADAC GT Masters instead. And then the AM Cup win went to Raton Racing by Target, which was a bit of a surprise, really. Um, they had a Lamborghini driven by Antonio Forne Thomas, uh, Stefano Constantini, and Christoph Lenz. Um, that win looked like it was going to go to Barwell for um, definitely not the first time in the last couple of years. 
but that, that car, their car uh, stopped on track towards the end of a race, so it um, helped Rattan Racing get that, get that win in Am Cup. And the other big news that came out over the weekend was something that's been hanging over the series to some degree for several weeks at this point, an appeal that had been lodged quite a while ago that had the potential to affect championships that was finally settled. Yeah, this news came out on Sunday morning, actually, a couple of hours before the race. Um, Grasser Racing Team had put an appeal against a disqualification from a qualifying session in June at Zandvoort. Um, which doesn't sound very, very major, but effectively what this um, ended up doing was affecting the overall um, GT World Challenge Europe championship battle um, because Andrea Calderelli and Marco Mapelli, who, who provisionally won the title, were um, so close to uh, they were so close to Lucas Stoltz and Mara Engel in the standings that effectively if Grassa had lost this appeal, they would have been disqualified from that race to his board that would have reshuffled all the points orders and it would have meant that Black Falcon actually got the sprint um, at GT World Challenge in uh, Europe title instead of the Italian uh, guys. Um, so that went to um, went to appeal. It was heard in the RACB court in Belgium and we got the results finally this uh, Sunday morning. Um, the Grasser won the appeal, um, which meant that the results stayed the same and it confirmed Calderelli and Mapelli as GT World Challenge Europe champions which set them up very nicely to go and take two more titles by the end of the day. Yeah, definitely. Kind of happy on our end that uh, we didn't see major shakeups as a result of that appeal. It definitely simplifies things on our end. But uh, looking back on the season as a whole, and we'll have more time to do this when we get to our year-in-review episodes uh, in December, but with a relatively short amount of time to think back on it, what might stand out to you, Jake, from the European uh, Blancpain GT races from this season, whether it's in the Endurance Cup or the Blancpain GT World Challenge Europe or just kind of in general, um, the, the various accomplishments and memorable moments? What, what stands out to you? Yeah, I think generally it's been, a, it's been an interesting season. Um, it's not been the most – I don't want to say it's not been very exciting, but it hasn't been – as unpredictable or controversial as a lot of other championships are at the moment. Um, but I think that's really down to the success of the SRO's formula in Europe. It works well. Um, it's in a rhythm that works. Um, people benefit from it. They've got good grids all around, good racing all around. And it just goes smoothly now, which means that we actually have um, you know, decent races every weekend, good competition, and yeah, I think it's, it's just shown that quite a lot this year, uh, the strength of the SRO formula. It's not maybe the most exciting uh, championship in some regards, but it works very well and it's a very successful one. The fact that we've still had good grades, good competition, um, the fact that we've got a very good balance still between pro and pro-am and silver and AMCUP cars definitely helps that. And I'm, I'm very excited to see how that continues next year. Well, congratulations to our champions, Andrea Calderelli and Marco Mapelli, sweeping all of the available championships. Really exciting stuff for them. Class champions crowned as well for the full coverage. You can check out sportscar365.com. And we would be remiss, Jake, if we didn't at least spend a couple of minutes here talking about another SRO championship that wrapped up over the weekend, Blancpain GT World Challenge Asia, racing at Shanghai. And I know you had one eye on that while you were keeping tabs of everything in Barcelona. Yes. Um, 
uh, interesting weekend in Shanghai. Uh, the season finale, as you said, there for Blancpain GT World Challenge Asia, which is a definitely a championship that sort of goes under the radar for a lot of people. But the, the quality of competition and racing that it's produced this year has been incredible. The size of a grid is remarkable. Um, and the fact that the SRO has sort of done the unthinkable feat of establishing a stable Asian GT racing championship is is, is very good. Um, so the title battle went down to the final race. It went the way of MG Choi, who is a, a Korean and Dutch driver driving for Solit uh, Indigo Racing in a Mercedes. He shared with a couple of different drivers throughout the course of the season. So he was with Manuel Metzger this weekend in, in Shanghai, but he's also driven with Gabriele Piana and Patrick Niederhauser, which means that, of course, he is a sole champion and doesn't share it with a teammate. Um, but yeah, you know, there were a couple of different driver pairings that went into the weekend with a chance of winning. Um, Choi, Choi came out on top with a, a very deserved performance. Uh, the, the races themselves, first one was won by Martin Rump and Wirin Tan in um, one of Audi Sport Asia Team Absolute Racing's Audi R8 LS GT3 Evos. Um, they, they were outsiders for the championship battle heading into the weekend, but sort of got eliminated after race one despite winning. And then race two went the way of Yuan Bo and Leo Yi Hongli uh, driving one of Absolute Racing's Porsches this time. So Absolute got both both wins, but with different different manufacturers. Um, so yeah, I definitely recommend going checking out sort of highlights of, of those races because, um, like I say, it's a series that doesn't really get that much attention, but the quality of competition there has been has been remarkable this year. It does appear to be on the on the rise, that's for sure. So that's a look back at the racing that took place over the weekend, and a whole lot more to be said about that in our stories and reaction pieces on the website. But up next on the podcast, we've got some news to discuss from the weekend sports car racing. That's coming up next on Double Stint. Hey, I'm Patrick Long, and you're listening to Sports Car 365's Double Stint Podcast. Back on Double Stint, time to get to some news items here, Jake, and certainly one topic that was at the forefront of a lot of people's minds where you were in Barcelona was GT2 because we saw the Audi racing for the first time, their GT2 offering in the hands of James Sofronis there in Barcelona, but also perhaps more importantly, a bit more direction about what the GT2 concept in the, is going to look like next year and, and how it's going to be integrated into the SRO series of championships uh, because it seems like the plan has changed from what was initially announced. Yeah, indeed. The plan does seem a little bit different, especially in Europe. Um, but effectively, as you were saying, James Sofronis was driving the Audi. He gave the car its race debut as part of the uh, Blancpain GT Sports Club race, which is a support series uh, mainly GT3 cars, usually with bronze drivers. Um, the idea really was that this was going to be the first ever multi-manufacturer GT2 race with some Porsches there as well, but the Porsches never turned up. A um, couple of different reasons were thrown around for that, but I, I believe it effectively came down to the Porsches being slower than the Audi because nothing's being BOP'd. Um, but yeah, so uh, Sofronis anyway took the opportunity to, to try the Audi on, on his own effectively amongst a load of GT3 cars. I spoke to him on Saturday. He was absolutely loving it. 
Um, but the news itself that actually came out of the weekend was sort of a slight change to how GT2 is going to be implemented in the GT Sports Club next year. The initial plan, which was announced as Spa in July, was to have um, a mixed grid of GT2 and GT3 cars in Sports Club in Europe and then to have separate series just for GT2 in America and Asia. So the American and Asia series are set to continue as planned, but they're going to split the European series into two, so there's an existing one for GT3 that continues, and then a separate series altogether for GT2 that gets underway a little bit later in the year to give teams a bit longer to prepare. So, um, yeah, that's that's the news really of GT2. Another thing which is really interesting, I think, is uh, Sophronis, who was saying that he was definitely pushing Stefan Rattel to have some sort of larger GT2 event at Spa um, as a support race to the Total 24 Hours. Um, Rattel announced that the plan would be for the American GT2 sports club competitors to go over to Spa in July and have that as part of their schedule, um, along with a bunch of other races competing on uh, standard SRO America weekends. I think a lot of this does strike me as a little bit provisional. I'm sure we're going to get more changes to the format um, before this properly all gets underway um, ne- next year. Um, but the idea is certainly there to have three different GT2 Sports Club uh, categories next year. Um, of course, this is all going to depend on interest and um, how many cars end up turning up. A quick point, which is definitely worth mentioning as well, is we were expecting to see a third GT2 manufacturer announced this weekend, adding to the Porsche and Audi cars already revealed um, that's been postponed apparently we think that was McLaren not confirmed but you know we've understood for a while that that would have been McLaren um, but that car has been postponed it's believed so at the moment we do just have the two uh, GT2 cars and then there's probably two other manufacturers that are working on programs that could reveal them sort of next year at some point one question I had, and I'll get to the reason why after you give me an answer, uh, but was just how well did the GT2 car play with GT3 machinery um, sharing the track at the same time? Because the cars make their speed in very different ways, a lot less downforce on the GT2 car, and I, I believe they're pretty fast in a straight line. Yeah, exactly, Ryan. You're spot on on that. Um, a lot more powerful, somewhere around 700 horsepower is the aim. Um, but less downforce. So watching Sophronis battle those G- uh, GT3 cars on track was really impressive because he could glide past on the straights and then lose it all in the corners. The end result on a track like Barcelona, which of course has a really, really long straight um, um, and a couple of high downforce corners, so it's a bit of a mix really, um, was that the GT2 car was sort of above mid-pack um, in GT3, I'd say. Bear in mind that these GT3 cars are all driven by bronze drivers, um, but in, amongst a bronze GT3 field, it was sort of running above mid-pack. Um, he was fighting for sort of a decent position. I think he finished third in one race, and then he, um, he spun out of another race, so that didn't really count. But the point is that he was definitely in the top half of the GT3 field. Um, comparing that to the Porsches at Spa, that was a very different race because they weren't on the same tyres. They were on Michelin tyres instead of Pirelli's. But the Porsches at Spa were a good few seconds slower per lap than GT3 cars. Um, of course, Spa is a very different track, but I think that sort of does prove a little bit of the point that the Porsche at the moment is a bit slower than the Audi, which could suggest one of the reasons why we didn't see many Por- we didn't see any Porsches at all this weekend. 
Yeah, that's interesting. And the reason I put the question to you was I know, at least on the American side, as you discussed, the plan is to have a standalone GT2 championship in the States. But uh, as you also mentioned, it's all based on interest. And I know James Sophronis has told me, he's told you the same thing. He has customers lined up. They have a lot of cars either in their possession or on order. But where some of these other cars might be coming from is a bit unclear. And I have the sense that the staff on the SRO America side of things are trying to think about contingencies in case they don't have enough GT2 cars Mm. to have a standalone championship, try and figure out where they can slot them in in an existing series. And and that's a real challenge because, as you discussed, certainly there's a big difference between the GT2 car and the GT3 car, and it may not play so well together. And I think that would be true if you were mixing them with GT4 cars as well, and uh, there's not an easy solution to that other than hopefully there's a lot of interest, there's enough cars on the grid, and they can go. But I know as far back as uh, Watkins Glen uh, at the beginning of September, there was some rumors, I suppose, floating around in the paddock about what the future of GT2 was going to be, what they might do, what contingencies might be there. Um, in the event that there weren't enough cars for a standalone championship. But uh, things could have changed since then, and again, hopefully that's not a problem that uh, that we have, and there's a nice grid of cars, and they can go ahead as planned looking ahead to next year. Speaking of SRO America, though, we did get to see a rendering of the proposed track layout for the season finale in Las Vegas. Now, It's worth keeping in mind, at the moment, this is still the proposed layout. The plan is for the FIA homologation to take place the week of the event in the days leading up to it. And as Greg Gill told John DeGuise, basically, think of this as a temporary street course. This is kind of par for the course in terms of how street courses are homologated by the FIA. So it's not a real cause for concern necessarily. But it is interesting, the the rendering that was revealed to teams, and subsequently we got our hands on it, and you can see it at sportscar365.com. Um, the, the layout is quite interesting. I actually think it looks pretty intriguing, but the big caveat is it doesn't look like much of the banking is going to be used with the, the, the oval portions of the Las Vegas track pretty much restricted to uh, the apron, which um, I do find quite interesting. What about what did you make of uh, what we saw? Yeah, I think it's a really um, strange track, actually, looking at it. Um, the infield section, a lot of that looks very slow and tight, just sort of towards the end of that infield section. Um, be interesting to see how that plays out. But I think, to be honest, it doesn't really matter too much what the track's like because realistically, the, the reason to go to Vegas isn't for a decent track or for the race, quality of racing. It's really so that Rattel can have his end-of-season awards uh, gala at, in, in Las Vegas at the Bellagio and for the spectacle of being able to hold hold the end-of-season SRO America event in such a, um iconic location. So I may be wrong here, but for my opinion, I don't really think the, the, um, the quality of the track matters too much because there's there's already so much novelty surrounding the event i think you're probably on to something there the the only counter i have to that is for the teams this does matter a great deal championships are going to be decided here and i know there's a lot of apprehension going in primarily just because of the amount 
of uncertainty that surrounds the event. People don't know the track. Even people who have some experience racing at Las Vegas on the Roval uh, layout that ALMS and, and actually World Challenge used over a decade ago, this is not the same format. It's not the same layout in a lot of respects. So no one's really quite sure what it's going to be like. And I do think there is a little bit of apprehension from the tire standpoint as well going into the weekend, the kind of loads that that some of these high-duration, high-speed sections, even without using the banking, might put on tires that really aren't – I mean, they don't race on any other tracks with significant banking. Um, so I think that's part of the reason why we see the, uh, the this particular layout eschewing the banking. But anyway, it's going to be really interesting. Um, I think you're right. I think the, the main focus of the weekend from the overall SRO sanctioning body perspective probably is around the global banquet, but – for the American teams that have put a whole lot of work and money into this season, this is where their championships will be won or lost. And uh, I, I don't know if we've ever gone into a season finale with so much uncertainty surrounding the event. But I'm anxious to see what it's like. Uh, curious to, to see what it'll be like when we get there on site. And it's a new track for me, which is always an exciting uh, element of this, too. So we'll see how it all plays out. Finally, we have another really exciting event to look forward to. Um, with DTM and Super GT running a couple of events in conjunction, and I really was excited, Audi naming some of their drivers for the Fuji Dream Race, and we also got word that BMW is going to be putting uh, Alex Zanardi back to work. So there's a lot to be excited about as the two, these two series continue to uh, increase their ties between the two of them. Yes, um, some very good um, names in these cars for Fuji. So effectively, the background here is um, a one-off race in Fuji in November um, between GTM and Super GT. There's going to be seven DTM cars there. That's four Audis and three BMWs. Some of the drivers have been announced. Uh, first one to be announced was, as you said, Ryan, um, Alex Zanardi at BMW, um, which is really exciting to see. Um, so he's going to have an especially adapted car, as he often does. Um, BMW hasn't announced their other two drivers yet, but Audi have announced all four of their. So they're going to have Rene Rust, Mike Rockenfeller, Loic Deval, and Benoit Trelloway. So the interesting point here is that that includes two DTM champions in Rast and Rockenfeller. Rast, of course, is the current DTM champion, and two former Super GT champions in Duval and Trelloway. So there's a nice uh, synergy there. Um, and each of those drivers is going to be um, have a car run by a different team. So one of them is going to be by, done by Team Rosberg, one by Team Apt Sportsline, one by Team Phoenix, and one from WRT with support from Audi Japan and Hitotsu Armor Racing, which is a local Audi partner team in Japan. So very exciting. I'm really excited to see that race. But before that, of course, this coming weekend, we've got the DTM finale at the Hockenheim Ring, and there's going to be a couple of guest cars from Super GT going over there. So we're going to have one car from each of the current GT500 manufacturers, which are Honda, Toyota, and Lexus, with the new Class 1 regulations coming in uh, to Super GT next year, um, when, the two car, when the two series will be running effectively the same formula of cars. Um, so I'm excited to see both of those upcoming races. Yeah, it should be really, really cool. I'm, I'm all, I'll echo your excitement on that. Uh, it'll, it'll be neat to see how the, how the two work together and what the future holds for both of those championships. So that's a look at the news for the week in sports car racing. Up next, Jake's chat with Andrea Caldarelli, who, as we mentioned, had a big weekend wrapping up 
a couple of championships and uh, actually got confirmed with a third. So a busy weekend and a successful one for him. We'll talk to him next on Double Stint. Hi, I'm Cooper McNeil, and you're listening to Sports Car 365's Double Stint Podcast. So, Andrea Calarelli, uh, incredible end of a season, an incredible season all, all year round, really. I mean, you've got three championships with, with Marco, the Endurance Cup, the Sprint Cup, and the overall title. First, uh, You guys were first drivers to do that in a single season as well. You must be really excited about that result. Yes, it's uh, fantastic. It's uh, Thinking about the start of the season to get this uh, kind of result was uh, very difficult, but uh, at the end uh, we did it, thanks to a lot of uh, hard work, not only from uh, us as a driver but also all the team did uh, an amazing uh, job all the, the Lamborghini Squadra Corse the Orange One the guys in FFF in China that they support us all, uh, all season through um, it was such a difficult season and so the joy is uh, even bigger because uh, it was very very difficult to, to get this and you've had extra work, of course, being a team manager as well as a driver. So it's not it's not as easy as it might sound for you. No, it's not. Uh, especially the last, uh, I would say, ten minutes of the race was uh, was very difficult with uh, another safety car, and uh, the pressure was coming up a lot. Like uh, I said, okay, you know, I have to do it. Don't have to do any mistake. Bring it back home safe and clean. Uh, so. I started to think about all all the year, honestly, passing my brain, and uh, it was uh, it was fantastic. And that opening uh, stint from Albert Costa, of course, he he only turned up late in the week as a replacement for Dennis Lind. Uh, just seeing his move around the outside on the way down to Turn One must have been really really crazy. It was uh, funny and scary at the same time. Uh, I actually. I told him uh, I had like a couple of speech with him before the, the the start of the race. I know that there was a lot of pressure on him, and uh, probably I boosted him up a lot. I said, "Don't worry, you're gonna go in uh, in turn one," and he actually did. He did an amazing job, honestly, to uh, just come here, do one short race instead of Dennis was uh, uh, incredible, and he showed that he's, he's a, definitely a great driver. And uh, we have also to thank Dennis because all year he's been so quick and so consistent that uh, he also allowed us to have uh, this championship uh, uh, together with Marco and I'm really, I think we have to share this championship also also with him even if he's not here And Marco Mapelli has um, had a, a very good middle stint as well and made a very good uh, overtake on, on Lucas Stoltz to take the lead um, talk, uh, talk a bit about that well, the only thing I can tell you about that is that I broke uh, the physio chair, um, the, yeah, the bed, because I was doing a massage before my stint. I saw the, the overtake and I was so excited. I started to jump and I said, yes, yes, yes. So um, then I fell down. So <laughs> that was my, my reaction on that. He did, uh, did an amazing move. I think was uh, the move that uh, allowed us to, to win this race. Thanks. Hello guys, I'm Alessandro Bazan and you are listening to Sportscast 365 Double Stain Podcast. Ciao! Back on Double Stint, thanks to Andrea for his time and Jake joining me now to look ahead to what's to come this upcoming weekend with the World Endurance Championship returning to action with the race at Fuji. Several different storylines to keep an eye on, but I think everyone is anxious to see what the success handicap, what influence that's going to have 
as uh, everyone's still getting used to this system, and I, I'm, I for one, am really curious to, to see how this is actually going to work in practice if the time penalties, effectively, that are being handed out are going to play out the, the way that they're supposed to. Yeah, I'm really interested to see how this is actually going to work. Um, just quickly to mention the entry list. The entry list is pretty much the same as Silverstone. 30 cars are planned. Um, we've we've only got one Rebellion car in LP1, as we knew. Um, but apart from that, a couple of driver changes, nothing too, too major there. So the main news, as you said, Ryan, is the success handicap. Uh, the headline there is that the Toyota that won at Silverstone, which is a car of Mike Conway, Jose Maria Lopez, and Kamiri Kobayashi, is going to be made 1.4 seconds slower per lap at the next race, which, of course, is quite quite a big change. Um, so this is a new success handicap system for the 2019-2020 season. The aim there is to close the gap between the hybrids and the non-hybrids. We don't really know how this is going to work. If it's going to work, if it's going to be too much, we'll have to see. Um, I'm really interested to see how it plays out. So that's just for the number seven car gets 1.4 seconds slower a lap. The number eight Toyota will be around one second slower a lap, and it's going to have almost 10% more hybrid energy available than the other Toyota. Then the number five Janetta, which finished fourth at Silverstone, will be about 0.66 seconds slower per lap. Um, and it's had a slight uh, weight increase of about 34 kilos as well. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this pans out. I know it's a very controversial system, um, but no one really knows how it's going to work. So, um, yeah, I guess just wait until and <laughs> wait until the race on Sunday. Yeah, don't have much choice in the matter. So I will see how that plays out for sure on Sunday. Looking forward to the coverage of that. You can find it, of course, at sportscar365.com. That's it for us this week. Thanks to Jake for helping us out with uh, all the details from everything that happened in Barcelona and parsing through the news, plus the interview with Andrea Caldarelli. We would appreciate a rating and a review on iTunes if you have the time to help us out with that. And also, questions and comments are welcome using the hashtag AskDoubleStint on Twitter or by leaving them in the comments section from this week's show. But with that said, that's it for us this week. Talk to you next week with our next edition of Double Stint. Oh, 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 oh,